them through whatever is going on. What an encouragement. And in light of uh, the testimony that you heard, uh, I, I was just inspired to cover one verse this morning uh, and maybe spend an hour or so on it and see what happens. <clears throat> We're going to be doing that over the next number of weeks of just taking these commands and exhortations you find in these verses from in chapter 5 from well, we began it last week in verse 12, and we'll, we'll keep going through verse 22, just looking maybe about one verse a week, because there's so much here that we want to unpack together and think through, uh, not just in this text, but to see how this is really covered throughout the scriptures, and this is not, not unique here in this material as well, but I, I think you'll find it to be very helpful. And many of you know, we have spent many weeks talking about spiritual growth chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians focus our attention on growing in what we know. That is the theme of the whole book, but these last two chapters have really focused our attention on what spiritual growth looks like. You remember chapter 4 verse 1, as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. That is the Christian life, how we live under the pleasure of God. Your pleasure is found in walking in a way that pleases God. And he says, as you've received instruction to that end, grow still more, excel still more. This is all about how to grow spiritually. Now, particularly, we should excel more in how we love one another and in our hope in the Lord. Those two themes, how we love each other and how our hope is found in the Lord, is really the theme of chapters 4 and 5. We remember that the entire book is arranged around three emphases of spiritual growth. We found those in chapter 1, verse 3. They were reiterated again in chapter 5, verse 8. And that is the work of faith. We need to grow in the work of faith. We need to grow in the labor of love. And we need to grow in the steadfastness of hope. And it is that labor of love and steadfastness of hope that are emphasized by the Apostle Paul in the last two chapters, in chapters 4 and 5 of this great book. Now this final section that we're studying together that begins in verse 12, it urges us to cultivate seven different habits. That's what we're unpacking uh, beginning last Sunday and carrying on for a few weeks. Seven different habits of what would be highly effective for Christian growth. Just seven different habits for effective Christian growth. And we noticed, and we said this last Lord's Day, that in verses 12 to 15, here are found habits that will help us grow in love toward each other. That is, appreciation, verses 12 and 13, patience, verse 14, and goodness, verse 15. In verses 16 to 22, they will pivot to the habits that cultivate growth in hope, hope in the Lord. That is our joy in verse 16, prayer in verse 17, gratitude in verse 18, and discernment in verses 19 to 22. And last week we focused on the first habit. That is to grow in our labor of love. That is to grow in appreciation, and particularly appreciation for those who labor in leading us in the word of God. This morning we're going to unpack the next habit to cultivate for effective growth within the flock, growth within the church. This one I call grow 
in patience. It's verse 14. You just heard it read. Grow in patience. Now, we could say another word for growth that we use a lot of times in our Christian lingo is the word discipleship. Discipleship is merely the process of excelling more and more in following Jesus. That's what discipleship is. It's growth. And I don't know about you, if you've lived the Christian life for any amount of time, say any more than at least a few hours, if you have been a Christian for at least that long, you have noticed that growth has a number of difficulties associated with it. Discipleship has a lot of difficulty with it. Discipleship, that process of excelling more and more, always involves overcoming some kind of difficulty. By definition, growth implies a difficulty that has to be overcome. There's always a hurdle to jump. There's always roadblocks to clear. There's always plateaus to break. There are habits that need to be broken, mindsets that need to change, choices that we need to endure, relapses that we have to walk through. Discipleship is difficult, isn't it? Discipleship is difficult because it always makes us work with problems, problems not only in our life, but problems that people face in their own lives. Discipleship is difficult because we have to interface and work with difficult people. Only in eternity future will our growth not only be unending, but unhindered. But in this life, as long as sin endures, discipling each other is going to involve some difficulty. And as we know, not every difficulty is made the same, is it? Our passage here in verse 14 instructs us in actually how to handle the difficulties inherent in discipling each other in the church. And you do understand, we are called to disciple each other. When Jesus said to make disciples of the nations, he did not just merely mean go to some other country and see they become Christians. He also involved in that because he displayed it with his own disciples. He meant by that, disciple each other. Disciple each other. The things that Christ was doing with the 12, you do in the lives of the people that God has put around you. Disciple each other. And that means it will be difficult because sin exists, sin is difficult, and sin manifests itself in ways through people who are struggling with sin. So what are these difficulties in discipling each other that we need to work through? Well, we're going to see this morning four kinds of difficult people with four different approaches in discipling them. Just four kinds of difficult people with four different approaches to discipling them. We're going to unpack this. And if you're wondering, yes, you are one of these. <laughs> and the person next to you, you already know in your mind, they are too. So let's keep our elbows to ourselves. Make sure you look ahead straight. No, there'll be moments where you turn and say, you've got that problem, I know that. You're this one here. But the reality is, all of us are going to move in and out of all of these. They will comprise the way we live our life and the way we have to walk through discipleship. When you get up from this seat you're sitting in 
and you turn to your neighbor or your family member and you begin to leave, you are going to walk into the process of discipleship and that is working through problematic issues with each other. It's just the way it is. Until the Lord returns, it's what we do. So four kinds of difficult people, four different approaches to discipling them. The first one, be direct with the disorderly. Be direct with the disorderly. This is how you disciple one level of difficult people and difficulties within discipleship. Be direct with the disorderly. I thought we'd get an amen somewhere there. It's found in the phrase in verse 14, we urge you brethren, admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. The unruly are the first kind of difficult disciples mentioned here. And being direct with them is how we disciple them. Now, who are the disorderly? Who are the unruly? Let's see if we can ask and answer that question here. And it would be easy to assume, I think, for us that anyone who is having a problem with any kind of sin fits in this category. Anybody struggling with sin, they would be the unruly, right? Well, not quite. There are other difficulties that are found here. But just because sin is our universal problem, it doesn't mean that disorderliness is the only universal sinful response. In fact, each of the kinds of people that we're going to talk about this morning reveal sinful approaches to life issues. Disorderliness or the unruly, that seems obvious, but the faint-hearted is also a kind of sinful approach if you live according to it. Weakness also is a kind of sinful approach to life if you live in it. Each of these responses reveals a response that's not a biblical response to life going on around you. And it requires biblical change. In that sense, all of these responses we're looking at today are, in one sense or another, they are sinful. But as we'll see here, not every sinful response to life should receive the same kind of discipleship response. There's a different kind of discipleship response to different kinds of sinful living. You need to determine the kind of problem you're dealing with in order to apply the appropriate kind of discipleship. So the first one here is the unruly. The word in the original Greek language of the New Testament is ataktas. It's a negative form of the word tasso, which means to arrange or to order. That means this is the negative form of the word to order, so it means disorderly, disordered. It was used in military contexts of being out of step or out of line, and thus it referred to a soldier who was insubordinate, or even an entire army that was in disarray because they were not working together. It could also refer to a person who is undisciplined, because they won't exercise the kind of self-control that's necessary to live in a well-ordered way. This is a disordered person. One commentator said this, in secular Greek, it describes such diverse persons as those who do not follow the rules of conduct in the gymnasium. And every local city, by the way, in the ancient world seemed to have a gymnasium. It wasn't just a place you exercised, though that did go on. You prepared for the games and competition. It was also a place of tutoring, and it was a place of very strict order. 
And people would receive instruction there on many different subjects. And if you didn't follow that, you were the ataktos, you were disorderly. It was also used of sons who failed to meet the financial needs of their parents and apprentices who miss work or fail to live up to the requirements of their contract or those who do not observe order and common law. This is the person that won't walk in step with the order that requires an orderly society. Now other forms of this word are actually used in 2 Thessalonians, the next book, and you can see them if you want to turn there to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. It describes them. In verse 6, Paul says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother. Now watch this. Every brother who leads an unruly life, a disordered life. Well, what did that disordered life look like in this context? He says, And not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Meaning the revelation that the Apostle Paul gave to that church, the revelation of the mystery, the New Testament mystery, the gospel message is that tradition. In verse 7 he says, for you yourselves know how you ought to walk, how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner. That's the same term, or it's a, a form of this term, an undisciplined manner, an unruly manner. Paul had a very disciplined manner according to what he revealed. Verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have a right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading, and here's the word again, an undisciplined life, a disorderly life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. That's the disorderly. That's the unruly they have become lazy and idle. They don't want to follow what the word of God says. And so now they are disregarding it to the point they don't even want to work. And this could have been a person who was believing the false report as we've studied earlier that someone said the day of the Lord has come, the day of God's judgment is here. So they're not working. They're living dependently off of other people, not giving a time and attention to their own responsibilities. So is this the lazy or is this just the insubordinate. I don't think we have to choose between those two because the lazy live insubordinate lives. This is an irresponsibility toward living in any way commensurate with what the word of God says. Every time you find yourself out of step with the word and you start living out of step with the word of God, you become a disordered person. They're disorderly meaning they intentionally refuse to walk according to the word. Now, he differentiates the disorderly here from the discouraged or the faint-hearted or the dependent people, that is, the weak. They're different than that. This is the person who sees the word, they know the word, and then they intentionally disregard the word. They don't want to follow it. Maybe they think, well, it's not accurate, so I don't want to follow it. It, it, it's not real, it's ancient, and so it doesn't apply to today. Or it doesn't speak to their situation. Or maybe they say they found a loophole in the word and they can skirt through. 
This is a passive listener. This is the person who listens but never applies the word to life because it fits other people, not necessarily them. This is good for people who need a crutch, not for me. This is the person who marches to their own drum, determines truth for themselves, follows the influence of other voices other than the scripture. Obedience for this kind of person is typically optional. Now, by the way, the disorderly here could have been the previously faint-hearted that will be described in a moment. The faint-hearted who refused to follow the scriptures in order to find strength or the weak who use their weakness to manipulate people to have pity on them and pay more attention to them may become eventually the disorderly. And we want to be careful here too. These three responses of these three different kinds of people that we'll look at before the, the final one which covers all of us, they don't describe one kind of person who is always struggling only in this way Everyone tends to move in and out of each of these in one degree or another. Some may be characterized by one of these in significant ways more than the others, but we all tend to move in and out of these frequently. These are the, these disorderly, they are the willful people in our church. We have them. They're the willful people. The defiant kinds of people. That might be you this morning. That, that might be you because you're not a Christian. Maybe you'd say, I, I don't identify myself as a believer in Christ. I'm not a disciple of Jesus, so I don't believe the word. And, and so you're disorderly not for, for looking at the word and as a Christian not following it. There's another kind of disorderliness. You, you simply need to see who the Lord Jesus is and what your sin is and how you need a savior and that there is a judgment coming. But this is describing here people who do know the Lord. They're in the church. The rebellious believers. Yes, that exists in our church. Yes, it exists in every single congregation. You can be a Christian and disobey. Did you know that? You, you can even have seasons of life where you find yourself disregarding God's word. So how do you disciple the disorderly? You have to be direct with them. You have to be direct with them. That's found in the word admonish. Admonish. This word admonish is the word that we actually looked at last week in chapter 5 verse 12 when the apostle Paul says, we request of you brethren that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, have charge over you in the Lord. And the word admonishment is this last word. And give you instruction. Give you instruction is the same word here. It's the word nutheteo. It could be translated as warn, as well as instruct. The word includes providing information, but it has the sense of urging someone to take that information that has been given to them and apply it. It is not just an appeal to the mind, it's also an appeal to the will to act on what you know. Warn them. In a positive sense, it means to advise, to give advice. In a more negative sense, it includes the idea of appeal to this person, warn this person, plead with this person. It's the way the Apostle Paul served the saints when he mentioned and he, he brought the elders of the 
church in Ephesus together in Acts 20 and he mentions his own ministry to them he says be on the alert remember that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with fears that's Acts 20 verse 31 I for three years admonished you I warned you I instructed you with warning and he, he goes on to say there are fierce wolves that are going to come into your midst so he warned them. Paul would say admonishment really is the, the drumbeat of his whole ministry, Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him being Christ. We proclaim him. And how do we do that? Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, Colossians 1.28. You remember that wayward church in Corinth, the Corinthians? We spent a few years studying that book together. Paul would say to that church in 1 Corinthians 4.14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Admonishment is not shame. It's not belittling. It doesn't have to be harsh. It's direct. It's straightforward. As we saw last week in verse 12, it's what leaders do with the word of God. They come alongside and they warn us. They admonish us when we're getting out of line and we're intentionally getting out of line and we don't want to follow the word. We see what it says, but we don't want to do it. You have to be directly admonished. So some think because of these uses here that maybe Paul's still talking about leaders because he mentioned leaders doing that and maybe that's what he's doing here, but I, I don't think so. If you look carefully at verse 14, notice the beginning of verse 14. We urge you, brethren... This is something all of us do together with each other. We all do this with one another. When we see a brother or sister in our flock living an unruly life, it is the call of God for us to come alongside of them and be direct with them in warning them. Romans 15, 14 reminds us, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. You are able to do this because you know the word. The more you grow in the word, the more responsibility you have then to apply the word to your brothers and sisters in the flock who begin to dis distract themselves away from the word. It's the idea behind Jesus' own instruction in Matthew chapter 18 when he, he mentioned this kind of scenario. If your brother sins, what should you do? Go. And Jesus uses a different word than this, but it's very similar in its idea. He said, show him his fault. That's one word in the Greek that simply means to reprove him. Reprove him. If he's sinning and he's out of step, go to the brother and personally reprove him. Not in front of everyone, one-on-one. -on -one. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, those two or three witnesses, tell it to whom? The church. What? What? Tell it to the whole church, that's right. If you see a brother or sister intentionally walking away from the truth of the word and they won't respond to initial confrontation and admonishment or a group that is pleading with them and warning them to come back, then you call the whole body to go after them. 
which is what we do in our members meeting, particularly when you see on our care list brothers or sisters who are not in attendance here or perhaps there's some other issue, we're calling the church, you the church, to go after them, to plead with them, to warn them, to bring them back. Or we as a church then will have to remove them and treat them perhaps as a non-Christian because they no longer show any affinity toward the truth of Scripture. It's what we're called to do with the disorderly. Corrective discipline is reserved for those who will not personally discipline themselves under the word of God. Be direct with them. I just want to say again, that doesn't mean that you have a right then to be mean-spirited. That's not, that's not inherent. You ever taken those spiritual gift inventories where you, you check off all the ones where you get to tell everybody what to do? You say, ah, I knew that my meanness had a spiritual gift to it. I'm like the prophet. I just... Yell at people. No, admonishment doesn't mean that you're mean-spirited. It doesn't mean that you're speaking out of frustration or that you belittle anyone or you berate a brother or sister who's out of scriptural line. No. You got to deal with your own frustration in a biblical way. Admonishment is pleading because you know what the consequences for them will be and you do not want them to go through that. Let me just give you another note about this word, nutheteo, to admonish. I recognize that a major helpful branch of biblical counseling has used this term, nutheteo, to describe itself. Nuthetic counseling, perhaps you've heard of that before. We, we have a lot of affinity toward that. But I just want to point out here, nutheteo is not a description of a form of counseling. It is a form of response to one kind of discipleship problem. Admonishment does not describe all counseling, all engagement. Admonishment describes one response to many discipleship difficulties. We need to keep that in mind. Not every sinful approach to life should receive admonishment. The unruly approach to God's word needs to be warned and urged with a firm, straightforward approach. But let's not suggest that no one in the world actually needs to be admonished. I, I hear that more and more today. Admonishment is just being mean. They're not patient. They're not being kind with me because someone was direct. I mean, I hear that today when someone is direct. We're even categorizing that as some kind of abuse. Let's not devalue the word abuse by doing that. A parent does not provide gentle encouragement to the child who is darting into the street in front of an oncoming truck. You cry out to them to stop. You aren't arranging meals for the person in the second story burning building. You urge them to jump. When a brother or sister is about to make a decision, they're involved in some kind of habitual sin that's destroying themselves and others and they hear the word and they reject the word and they refuse to listen and they're wandering away in defiance, they're sulking in anger, the discipleship need is admonishment, it's warning, it's urging them because the consequences for them could be spiritually fatal. You say, well, if, if you have that kind of church, nobody's going to attend. Well, listen, this is not the kind of stuff that will make your church add numbers of people who simply like the attraction. 
This will actually grow you in depth in obedience to God and healthy. And we need more of that, my friends. Our American society is filled with small rooted churches. So it is scary at times to admonish. It is difficult to admonish. But it is necessary. You've been around families that never admonish. And you see the results of that. And it's not healthy and it's not good. Even though, my friends, it's hard. And it is. Let me also just say before we move on here, admonishment is not to be a silk screen to hide your personal frustrations either. We have to be reminded of this. We don't admonish people because they have disappointed us. We don't admonish people because they have personally frustrated us. The issue actually that needs to be addressed in the person's life is not really about us. It's about where they are with God. You admonish to bring the wayward person, the disorderly person face to face with God in the word. You urge because you know who God is in his holiness and you care about this person. So you admonish them. That's the first approach to a kind of discipleship difficulty in the church. Let's look at a second. A second approach to a second kind of difficulty in discipleship is found in the next phrase. I simply entitle it here, be encouraging to the discouraged. Be encouraging to the discouraged. We see that in the next phrase. You, yes, you admonish the unruly, but notice the next one. You encourage the faint-hearted. You encourage the faint-hearted. Now, who are the faint-hearted? Don't raise your hand. Who are they? How would we recognize the faint-hearted? Well, the, the word that is used here in the original Greek is the term oligopsukas. That's one you use every day, isn't it? Oligopsukas. It's made up of two significant, word, two significant words. Oligos, that means small. And sukas, which is the normal word for soul. This is the small-souled person. They do not have a mega soul. They have a small soul. They're not ready to take on the world. The world is too big to them. They're the small-souled person. This is the only time in the New Testament this word is ever used. It is found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we refer to as the Septuagint. It's found a number of times there. And it's translated with terms like despondency, anxious, grieve. It's used to describe Jonah in Jonah chapter 4 verse 8 when he, quote, became faint and begged with all his soul to die. One lexicographer has suggested that this word could apply to worry, fear, or discouragement. Now in the context of First and Second Thessalonians, this likely refers to those people who had been, been discouraged and maybe even depleted of confidence filled with anxiousness because of the persecutions that they were facing and they were going through extreme persecution 
This is the kind of person who's been under so much distress of their soul, duress from life circumstances, that their soul is not large, it's not strong, it's not big with confidence, it's small with self-defeat. This is the person who is in despair and filled with a deep sorrow of the soul. They're easily discouraged, they're distraught, they're perhaps despondent, they're downcast, they're hopeless. They lack confidence in their ability to succeed in any given situation. They worry about almost everything. They worry too much over some things that they should have no reason to worry about. They refuse to risk themselves because they're too concerned. They don't want to expend any effort because they're so melancholic about their situation, they assume that it's worthless to do it. What you hear from them is not the I won't of the disorderly. You hear from them, it isn't possible. I just want to pause here for a moment and remind ourselves this is a sinful response to circumstances. Perhaps it is not the intentional kind of disregard of the scripture we see in the disorderly, but it is the choice to disbelieve what God says about a circumstance in life. It is the choice that a person makes to habitually believe another voice other than the scripture about what's going on. It is, as we could refer to it, the sin of unbelief, not trusting the truth of the word, but living in despair because you have determined that your evaluation of the situation which happens to be hopeless is a better evaluation a more accurate evaluation than what God has said about it we need to be careful that we don't over psychologize discouragement into a mere chemical mix-up of which we have no personal responsibility not even the secular psycho psychological world will tell you that a pill will fix your thinking and Jesus will tell us very directly do not be anxious. Paul urges us, be anxious for nothing. If you worry enough, you follow the voices of discouragement enough, the self-talk that you speak to yourself enough, that you get yourself into despair, and you try to live up to an image you can never achieve, and you do that long enough, then you will build habits of thinking that appear instinctive, and it will fire off all kinds of physical adverse effects in your body that leave you not wanting to even get up in the morning. Perhaps you result to harming yourself or at worst looking to leave this life just like Jonah or Job who said in Job 3 verse 1, he opened his mouth after all those devastating circumstances of his life chronicled in the first two chapters and he cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was to be born and the night which said a boy is conceived. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul who long for death but there is none and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? For my groaning comes at the sight of my food and my cries pour out like water for what I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease nor am I quiet and I'm not at rest. Turmoil comes. <laughs> That's despair, isn't it? 
That's small-souled. David despaired of life. In Psalm 38, verse 2, your arrows have sunk into me and your hand had pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Do you see he feels it physically? For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They are way too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. That's the faint-hearted. That was David, the king. The great apostle Paul despaired of life. In 2 Corinthians 1, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. John Piper wrote of the renowned Victorian British preacher Charles Spurgeon. Perhaps you've heard of him. Piper said, it is not easy to imagine the omnicompetent, eloquent, brilliant, full of energy Spurgeon weeping like a baby for no reason that he could think of. In 1858, at age 24, it happened for the first time. He said, quote, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child and yet I knew not what I wept for. He added, causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's harp charm it away by sweet discoursings. As well, fight with the mist as with this shapeless, undefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness. The iron bolt which so mysteriously fastens to the door of hope and holds our spirits in gloomy prison needs a heavenly hand to push it back. Piper goes on to say that Spurgeon saw his depression as his worst feature. Despondency, he said, is not a virtue. I believe it is a vice. I am heartily ashamed of myself for falling into it, but I am sure there is no remedy for it like a holy faith in God. Yes, robust Christians can be faint-hearted. Yes, they can. And just because saints have experienced such soul-depleting discouragement doesn't mean that it's spiritually okay to stay there. You cannot keep having unbiblical outlooks on life. To be faint-hearted is to see life differently than God sees it. Which is why when someone refuses to see life as God does and they live in their own vision of life, It is sinful. It is sinful. But the faint-hearted, the discouraged, and the depleted are not to receive the direct admonishment that the unruly receive. The sin of the faint-hearted is not the same kind of sinful response of the intentionally disobedient and insubordinate Christian. So that's who they are. How do you help the faint-hearted? How do you help the distraught, the discouraged. 
Being faint-hearted is an unbiblical response to the issues of life, so it's a sinful response, but the sinful response needs more than admonishment. How do you help them? What's the word here? What do you do with them? Encourage them. This is a different word translated in encourage here than what we've seen in chapter four, verse one, parakaleo, when Paul urges or exhorts or even the word for encourage found in verse 11 of chapter five or verse 18, comfort. It's a different word than that in Greek. Completely different term. It's a word that means to console, to console. Paul does use this word in this letter in chapter two, verse 11, when he says, you know how we were exhorting. That's one word, parakaleo, we're urging and encouraging or consoling and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. That's what fathers do with their children. Sometimes they come alongside to console, not just to urge, not just to rebuke, but to console. One lexicon describes this word here translated as encouragement as to speak to someone in a friendly way, to draw close to someone in friendship and support. You don't hammer the heart of the discouraged with admonishment. You salve the soul of the discouraged with companionship. Be with them. You don't have to be just silent, but you do need to be with them. And you need to have words that build support underneath them. Help them to define the parameters of anxiety and discouragement. Discover the patterns of despondent thinking with them. Bring alongside a kindly, persistently, constant approach to how God sees life. Show a big vision and a big picture of God's sovereignty, his love and his wisdom. Bring along with you Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God, that shows the sovereign hand of God and the goodness of it and the depths of the love of God and the breaths of his wisdom in all the areas of life. That's how you encourage someone and you walk with them through it. You remember James's encouragement in the first chapter of James when trials come? James will tell a beleaguered group of Christians who are under the weight of trials and likely discouraged by them. He says, brethren, in verse 2 of chapter 1, count it all joy. Why would he have to tell them that? Count it all joy when you fall under various kinds of trials. Why do you have to be told to count it joy? Because it's not joyful. It's discouraging. It's depleting. Count it joy because you know God is at work and he's going to take these trials and build you up and strengthen you. And I know that there's going to be someone who says, oh, this is God and he's just driving me into sinful responses. No, God never uses trials that way. He never does that. That's what he says. God doesn't tempt us to sin, right? You know, there's a verse in, in James 1 that we often disassociate from trials, but we shouldn't because it's in the same context. You remember the verse in verse 17 of chapter 1 that says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. 
You know that verse? You've heard that? It's all about trials that God has ordained in your life. You're to see the trials as a good thing given, a perfecting gift from God coming from him, the father of lights, and he doesn't move around back and forth. He's as stable and sure and steady as you get. And you have to help. That's what James is doing. He's encouraging the faint-hearted. They're under the duress of trial. And he says, do you see who God is? He's not bringing evil. He's showing you how de- deep he is. The depths of his love and comfort. We have to come alongside people and help them do what Peter calls us to do what Peter was calling on beleaguered saints to do who are receiving persecution first Peter 5 6 humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time and how do you humble yourself before God's mighty hand by casting all your anxiety on him because he cares That's how you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You cast all your cares on him. You have to help someone think about all things, the way God sees all things. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1 and 2, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. What do the discouraged get their mind fixated on? Now, here, Self, the present, the things on this earth. Where do our minds need to be? On how God sees them. How he governs them. Set your mind on things above, not the things that are on earth. That's how you encourage the faint-hearted. You come alongside them day after day. It's what the writer of Hebrews says. Encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today. Is it called today? Today? That's when you encourage. Still today, it's not tomorrow, it's today. Encourage them. Help the faint-hearted to build this reservoir of confidence now because you know that the trials that discourage are coming. They're gonna need to dip into that reservoir and be reminded. If you live habits of discouragement, Habits of discouragement are going to reveal misplaced focus and expectation. And you're going to need someone to patiently, kindly, graciously walk with you as a friend to put your mind on the things where they need to be. Encourage those who are discouraged. Let's look at a third kind of discipleship difficulty and how to approach it. It's in the next phrase. Be devoted to the dependent. It's the third approach to discipleship difficulties in the church. Be devoted to the dependent. It's in the phrase in verse 14, help the weak. Help the weak. Be devoted to the dependent. Now, who are the weak here? The word used here can refer to both the physically ill, those who are sick, or those who lack moral or internal strength. These are the spiritually incapable. Now, I'm sure there's someone out there saying, ah, no, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, so it's impossible to be spiritually incapable. (laughs) You poor soul. 
Why does Paul have to say that? Because someone finds himself in a place where they don't feel capable. And perhaps they're physically or spiritually incapable and they have to be reminded, no, God will make you able. Now in the context, in 1 Thessalonians, maybe this is some of the young believers in this very spiritually young church who are beginning to crumble in the face of the withering and relentless persecution that they're facing. They're about to give in to the pressures to quit the faith. They're weak. They don't have the spiritual stamina yet. Maybe it's the kind of person who requires assistance because they're not really mature enough to stand spiritually on their own, the baby believing Christian, the immature Christian who has not yet developed the spiritual habits that build strong spiritual muscle and reflexes that would respond well to the challenges that they face. This could also be the confused Christian who has not yet had his or her biblical senses trained and they're easily entangled by whoever seems to speak most strongly with a Bible verse at hand. The weak could be the young believer who sees strong believers exercising their Christian liberties in ways that that young believer, they're not biblically trained to discern that those things that those stronger people are doing are spiritually legitimate. That's how Paul refers to the weak in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 and Romans 14 and 15. They're so young that they haven't trained their abilities yet. This could be the weary Christian who's beleaguered from the battle and finds himself or herself depleted from the battle and they they can't seem to make it on their own. They're worn out. They need assistance to continue to stand firm. Maybe it's the Christian who's lived in such a compromising way for so much of their life that they have made themselves morally or spiritually weak and they require constant assistance to gain back their spiritual strength. The weak are those who for some reason can't live on their own. They require the assistance of someone else. You say, well, that that can't really be sinful, is it? Well, more than likely it is. It's living in a state of weakness. It's responding constantly in wrong ways, living independently of others, and it leaves you weakened. We weren't made to live the Christian life by ourselves on our own the baby who can't handle what's going on and they can't stop all the bad food that's coming at them spiritually speaking they need someone in their life to help them with that the immature who who won't make the decisions necessary to keep themselves from just staying in immaturity The confused person who will not abandon their way of thinking for something more biblically accurate. The weary Christian who simply will not allow anyone else to be involved in their life. To be weak is one thing. To live in a weak way is to live in an unbiblical way. Yes, you can be weak. You don't want to stay there. But you don't admonish the weak. You don't merely console the weak. How do you help the weak? How do you come along? How do we disciple them? You see the word? Help. Help. You assist. 
Broken legs require the assistance of a chair. It's needed. Think of Moses in the battle with Amalek. As long as he held his arms up, they're winning the battle. What happened to his arms? They started to grow weak and weary. If he thought he could just do it on his own the whole time, Israel would have been destroyed. He needed Aaron and Hur to stand beside of him and hold up his weakened arms. The word help can literally mean to cling to, to adhere to someone. It's actually translated as the word devoted. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Or it can be translated as holding fast like in Titus 1, 9 where the elder is holding fast the faithful word. He's devoted to the word. He won't let it go. The idea in the word help is that being devoted to someone who is weak, clinging to the person who is unable to carry themselves spiritually at the moment, you are devoted to them. This is why I call this approach to discipleship to be devoted to the dependent. They are weak because they cannot live independent. They cannot live on their own. They cannot exercise uh, life on their own. They are dependent. So be devoted to them. Live close to them. They need the devotion of one who will walk with them. Those who are having a hard time standing firm in the midst of the battle need someone to come alongside and fight with them and maybe even for them for a while. Have you ever noticed that a hopeless person might have to rely on your hope for a while? Maybe the weak need a break from the rigors of their current environment. They don't have the means or the time and they need someone to come in and say, I'm going to help you make the time and I'm going to help you make this, this work. And you help them do it. Maybe you come alongside a, a weary mom and you help them to clean their home and to make some meals and to talk with them about issues regarding parenting because they just feel this is, I, I'm at my end. I don't know what to do. I don't have anything left. It might mean some very long conversations to listen to the poor thinking and the incorrect biblical convictions and kindly but persistently study the word until those false ideas are replaced with strong ones. It may mean going with a brother or sister to talk with someone that they're out of sorts with to help them to handle this. Maybe you're just available at odd and inconvenient times when temptation seems to be hitting this weak person again and they need the firm, biblical, friendly voice to help them resist it. They need help. They need assistance. They need someone who will be devoted to them and won't leave them out to dry. In the moment, they need your strength because they don't have their own. That might be you, and that might be someone that you know. Help them. Be devoted to them. The temptation in your heart is to say, not again. In fact, the temptation in your heart with the unruly is to say, I'm done with you. The temptation in your heart with the faint heart is, is, is to say, you're making me faint hearted. So what do you do? 
It's the last response. It's the fourth and the final approach to handling the difficulties of discipling each other in the church. What is it? Be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. When you're tempted to say, I'm done with you, be patient. When you're tempted to say, I, 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 I don't want to do this anymore with the faint-hearted, stand up on your own to the weak. Be patient. Be patient. We don't really have to define who this category is, right? Everyone is pretty clear. Is it clear to you? I could give you the Greek term. I don't think it's going to change your, your thinking on it. Everyone means look around. Every single individual in this room and all of those who aren't here who should be. Be patient with them. We may move in and out of all of these kinds of categories. The disorderly, the discouraged, the dependent. But we're patient with everyone. Let me just give you a thought on this word patience. There's two different words in the Greek for the word patience. One word is the word hupomone, which means to stand up with endurance underneath something. To endure, to patiently endure a trial. That is not this word. This is a different word. It is the word macrothumia. Macrothumeo. Thumas is the word, is the root word of this, that means anger. This means to be long in your temper. To be long-tempered. Not short-tempered. I'm done with you. Long-tempered, where you're going to stay at it and not get frustrated and not get angry with the weakness and the faint-heartedness and the unruliness, but to stick with it. You become long-tempered with everyone. Everyone. So we all in this room know why Paul picked that word, don't we? We know why he chose that one. He didn't just say, stay strong underneath the trial. No, he said, don't let your temper go. Be long-suffering. That's how it's oftentimes translated. Suffer long. That's discipleship. That is the overarching approach to discipleship too. Be long-suffering, long-tempered, a temper that requires ages before it ever quits on someone. How do you grow in that? Well, <clears throat> you do it by discipling each other in the three ways that we just dis described. And you don't quit it. And you'll grow more in your temper towards people. I think that's why Paul says in the very first phrase of this verse, we urge you, brethren. We urge you. We exhort you. We're pleading with you. Because I think there's probably some in the group who are about to get short-tempered with others. That's four kinds of discipleship. Four kinds of discipleship problems, four specific discipleship responses. For the disorderly who say, I won't, you're direct with them. For the discouraged who say, it's not possible, you encourage them. For the dependent who say, I can't, you be dependent and you be devoted to them. And for everyone who says all of those things, you be patient with them. Do we need to point this out that to do this assumes 
that you are committed to a group of people in a church? This presumes that you're a part of a local church. This presumes that you're devoted to be a member of a local church because as we say when we're in a members meeting and we rehearse our church covenant together out loud, we are rehearsing how we are going to live with each other the Christian life. Again, it's hard. I think some people will leave because they don't want that kind of involvement. They just come here to sit and take in the show and then go. They don't want this kind of approach to Christianity. I'll handle my problems myself. But that leaves weak Christians. It, it really depletes the testimony of Jesus in our culture. But we need a church who says to each other that we're, we're going to live this way with one another. And it's, it's very challenging. There's, a, there's more than one in this room, so it's challenging. Christianity is not just a club we show up to when we're feeling like we need someone to talk to or be with. It's, it's a family who doesn't go away with us, go, doesn't go away from us. They stay there, they stick with us. This is discipleship. So last week we say grow in your appreciation of those who labor in giving you the word. This week we say grow in your patience in discipling each other. And that makes for a healthy church. Let's pray that we be that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time of studying the word and meditating on the truth of scripture. We pray that there are specific circumstances and people and opportunities that come into our mind of which we need to apply this or perhaps we find ourselves in need of this kind of a fellowship. And I pray that you would provide it. I pray that you would urge those of us who our hearts have been convicted with a person in mind that we would take the right step with them. I pray for those who need this kind of involvement that you would make them willing to receive it. Open their heart to it. I pray for the unbelieving. I pray you would show them that the world will never give them this kind of devotion. The world will never care for them in this way. And every relationship they ever have will be shallow in comparison to what they could have in the fellowship of your people. And use it to show them of the consequences of sin and the need and even the joy of what it means to be in Christ. Use this now for your glory among us and build in us a strong, healthy congregation, vibrant in our involvement with each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. The alarm went off.